Well, take your Bibles out and turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. We'll be considering the last 10 verses of Exodus chapter 3 this morning in a message I've entitled, What's in a Name? What's in a Name? Let me ask you a question. Are you satisfied with the name you've been given? That your parents named you? Are you happy with that name? Do you think, uh, man, I wish they would have named me something else? You know, we have five kids, and we didn't plan it this way initially when we started having all those children. But uh, when Trent came along, our third child, we already had two children, Aubrey and Ashley, and it just so happened we named them A-names, and Amy is an A-name, so we said, well, let's keep the pattern going, and we'll name our sons T-names. And so we have three A-daughters and two T-sons. Now, that doesn't get confusing at all when we're calling them, right? Um, But what is in a name? How do you name someone? You, you know, my son Trent, speaking of him, he actually has already determined what he's going to name his firstborn son. Our family's laughing. <laughs> so he wants to pay homage to his two grandfathers, my dad and Amy's dad. So he's going to name them after them. My dad, his Swiss German name is Edwin Rupert. And Amy's dad, David, his first name is Hubert. So Trent's decided to name his firstborn son Hubert Rupert. (laughs) Now, I think his wife will probably have to approve of that name. That remains to be seen. But whatever you name a child, you're going to get your money's worth out of that name, right? It's going to be with them for 70, 80, 90 years, their whole life. And so whenever a a couple finds out they're expecting or they're going to be having a child, they'll begin that process. What kind of name are we going to pick out? They may look at baby name books, right? They may try to find something that sounds good with the last name that kind of flows. Or there may be an ancestor's name like Hubert Rupert that you want to, uh, you know, pay homage to in the name of your child. But a lot of times we rarely consider the meaning of the name with much weight when it comes to naming a child. Uh, my mom didn't know this. Um, when she named me, she, want, she just liked the name Troy, Um, she didn't realize that the French derivation of Troy is (laughs) curly-headed. Kind of appropriate. She didn't know that. But when we come to the Bible and we see a name, well, that's significant. The names of people in the Bible are significant. We learned a couple of weeks ago that Moses' name was named by Pharaoh's daughter, and it means drawn out of the water. And that's exactly what happened to Moses. He was drawn out of the water. We know in the In the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives Simon, his disciple, a new name, a nickname. It's Peter, and that means the rock. Now, this is true with human names, but it is especially true with the name of God. Because anytime we're given insight into the name of God, it's not just a name that we call him by. It's just not how he's known. It is insight into his character. It is uh, truth related to his nature. And so God's name, whatever name he is called or whatever name he reveals, it is a description of who he is. And so as we look at our focal passage in just a moment, we're going to see that God actually, for the very first time in human history, reveals his personal name, and he does it to Moses. I'll just remind you where we are in our study in the book of Exodus. Uh, we're in the, looking at this conversation that Moses is having with God at the burning bush. And in that conversation, Moses has just been commissioned by God. What's he been commissioned to do? You're to go to Egypt. You're going to go to the elders of Israel, and you're to tell them, 
God has sent me to go to Pharaoh and to tell him to liberate the million-plus Hebrew slaves that were the, ta- the labor force of the Egyptian power. And so, after he receives this commission, we saw last week, Moses asked a question. Who am I? <laughs> this is a big job. Who am I? And this is what God's answer was, paraphrasing. I'll tell you who you are, Moses. You're the guy who's going to have me with you. I'll tell you who you are, Moses. You're the guy that's going to have my presence upon you. I'll tell you who you are, Moses. You're the guy who is going to be the instrument through whom I perform miraculous works and powers and signs. That's who you are. So today in our passage, we're going to see that, well, Moses has a follow-up question. Okay, that's who I am. I'm the one that's going to have you with me. There's a follow-up question I have, God. And let's look at our focal passage. The follow-up question is in verse 13, and then uh, the ramifications of that reality are the rest of the passage. This is the word of God. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go to a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. What's in a name? That's the question of my message. That's the goal of the message. The goal of the message is to discover how God answers that question. Who shall I tell them has sent me? What is your name? And further, what are the real life ramifications of that name, of that revelation of his personal name and his personal identity? And I want to say to you today, as we study this passage, listen, I believe if we approach this text with the same curiosity, with the same intensity that Moses asked the question, listen, God can do a work in our hearts. God can transform our lives simply by pressing in and getting to know this God. There are two main truths from the passage I want us to consider together this morning. The first one is this. I want us to consider a pronouncement of his person. 
There is a pronouncement of his person. Moses asked the question, whom shall I say has sent me? And it's in response to that question that God reveals and makes this pronouncement about his person. It's a description of his identity. Now, this question that Moses asks, who shall I say sent me? I think this is a legitimate question. I don't think he's trying to throw up some kind of smoke screen. Okay, let me just kind of divert attention to what God says I'm supposed to be doing here. I think this is a legitimate question for a couple of reasons. One, he's been instructed to go to the elders over Israel. And surely he has to be able to say to the elders of Israel, hey, guess what? Um, I've been sent to deliver you. And so he has to be thinking, all right, I'm supposed to go to these elders. I haven't been in Egypt for 40 years. Surely they're going to have some questions. Who are you? Where did you come from? Oh, you say a bush told you to come. Oh, okay. Just who was talking from that bush? What is his name? Yeah. What about him? Before they're going to go to Pharaoh and say, hey, we uh, want to talk to you a little bit. We need to leave. Is that cool with you? They want to know the identity of this person who has given them this instruction. But I think further, another reason Moses may have asked this question, who are you? What is your name? Is because he personally needed to know. This would expand the foundation of his belief and of his faith and of his confidence, of his courage. If he knows who God is and how he's revealing himself, it would further establish his call. And I want to say to you today, do not be afraid to ask this question of God. Do not be afraid to inquire of the Lord, who are you? Who are you? And then look into his word to find the answer to that question. We should actually be doing that every day. <laughs> if you look in the word every day, if you seek from the scriptures to know God better, what is that going to do to your ministry? What is that going to do for your service in the kingdom? How is that going to strengthen your, your resolve in faithfulness to the Lord and your discipleship? Listen, if you're feeling weak, behold our God. If you're feeling scared, behold our God. If we do not regularly examine and re-examine the nature of God and the massiveness of God, if we don't, it's a recipe for disaster, for distraction, and for burnout. From time to time, I'll talk with folks in our church, and they'll express they're a little burned out. They're burned out from serving in the church. They're burned out in life. You know what the antidote for being burned out in ministry is? Behold God. Behold God. Look at him. We sin and we stumble and we burn out and we get distracted when we move away from this contemplation of who he is. So God responds to Moses' question, who is it that I should tell them is sending me? And in that response to Moses' question, there's some invaluable truths we learn about God in the process. The first thing is this, God reveals his profound immensity. He reveals his profound immensity. Again, God's initial answer to Moses' question is this, I am who I am. Is that confusing at all to anybody else besides me? Okay. I am who I am. What, is, what does this even mean? 
We don't talk like that, right? We don't use that kind of terminology. It's kind of grammatically unclear. On the surface, it doesn't seem to be even that relevatory. The president of Wheaton College, Philip Ryken, I have his massive volume on the book of Exodus, he said this about this answer. He said, I am who I am is the kind of statement that raises more questions than it answers. What is this? What does this mean? Even with that statement, there's a variety of verb tenses. The language is somewhat multifaceted, but as you move through the text, God does begin to expand on the understanding of it. When you move to verse 15, he actually gives his proper name. He gives his proper name. In our English Bibles, it's normally translated as Lord, but it's in all caps. You see that in your Bible? Verse 15, Lord, and it's in all caps. Now, most of you probably know this, but if you don't, this will be new, that any time, particularly in the Old Testament, you see the word LORD in all caps, L-O-R-D, 100% of the time, the Hebrew word that's underneath that English word LORD is the word Yahweh. Yahweh, that's the personal name of God. This word Yahweh is used in the Old Testament over 5,000 times. So again, anytime you're reading the scripture and you see all caps, L-O-R-D, it's the proper name of God, Yahweh, that is his name. And that's just how we understand to say it. Only consonants were written, no vowels. And so we're kind of guessing on the, on the pronunciation, but that is his proper name. Now, there will be times you're reading your Bible and you'll see the word Lord that only has the L capitalized and then the O-R-D is lowercase. Typically, that's the Hebrew word Adonai. But sometimes Adonai is used for other people besides God as a ruler, a Lord over a people. But anytime you see all caps, it's the proper name of God. But here's the connection to verse 14 and then verse 15. So God says to Moses, I am who I am. And then he says, this is my name, Yahweh. Those two words come from the same root word. And the root word is simply a verb that means to be, to be. So this is what God's saying. I am to be. I am who I am. Now, if this is confusing, maybe looking at a mathematical equation will help us. You're like, oh, that won't help us at all. (laughs) Look at it. It's a very simple mathematical equation. God equals question mark. What could we put in that answer to be true? God. That's the answer. God equals God. There is no other answer to that equation except God. God is the only person who equals God. I am who I am. Doris Day sang a song, Que sera, sera. What does that mean? Whatever will be, will be, right? It's a loose translation. (laughs) Whatever will be, will be. Listen, that's a true statement. Whatever will be, will not be. That's nonsensical. Of course, whatever will be, will be. It couldn't be anything else. Sometimes when I get frustrated with situations or circumstances, I'll say, well, it is what it is. Anybody ever said that besides me? Well, it is. It couldn't be. It is what it isn't. It's not what it is. That's nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. It has to be. It is what it is. God only equals God. I am who I am. And in an infinitely deeper level, what he's saying here is this. Listen, I am self-existent. I am self, uh, 
sufficient. God equals God means he is not dependent on anyone or anything to exist or to be. Everything and everyone else is dependent. Are you a dependent? You say, well, not on my taxes. Well, maybe not there, but you're dependent. We're all dependent on someone or something. Everyone and everyone in the uni- everything in the universe is dependent. The other thing about us is we are all changing. Yesterday was my birthday. I turned 55 years old. I'm an old man, the double nickel, getting all this gray hair and hair in my beard. I, yesterday, a couple of my grandkids came by and they're jumping on me. And I'm like, guys, I'm an old man, <laughs> right? You start to feel it. We're all in a constant state of change. Does God ever change? No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is immutable. That means he's unchangeable, but we're always changing. We're in, always in a state of becoming something else. God is always who he is. In fact, I love the way A.W. Tozier put it. He helps us think about this concept. He says, Almighty God, just because he is almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous, ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet, if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is not greater for our being, nor would he be less if we did not exist. This is the self-existence of God. Welcome to church. He doesn't need you. He doesn't. He doesn't need me. I am who I am. God spoke through the psalmist in Psalm 50 to further expand the ramifications of this truth. Look at Psalm 50, verse 12. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Again, I don't need you. I am completely self-sufficient and self-existent. That's who he is. But the, Moses, the message that Moses needed to hear, and just put yourself in his sandals. Actually, he was in bare feet at this time. Put yourself in his bare feet. This is the message that he needed to hear. And friends, it's the message that we need to hear. Moses, here's your answer. I don't need you. I am completely self-reliant. And this is the message the elders over Israel needed to hear. He's the self existent, self-sufficient God. This is the message that the Hebrews who had been under slavery for 400 years needed to hear. And friends, this is the message Pharaoh needed to hear. But now watch this. The revelation of God to Moses as I am who I am, this was a brand new revelation in the chronology of redemptive history. God had never, before this event at the burning bush, God had never revealed to any of his people his personal name, Yahweh. This was the first time. But look what the Bible says a couple chapters from now in Exodus chapter 6. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Is that in all caps? Yes. What name is that under Lord? Yahweh. 
He spoke to Moses and said, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. The name under there is El Shaddai. I appeared to them as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. This is a brand new revelation about who God is. And he reveals to Moses, then the elders, then the people of Israel, and to Pharaoh. Here's who's talking. Yahweh, I am. So friends, we need to think about this name because it reveals the character of God so significantly. Here is Moses. He's an 80-year-old man who's being sent to persuade the elders and millions of Jews to confront their monarch and say, let us go. This was much more than just a theological reality. This is a practical reality. You see, here's the deal. When God gets bigger, our problems get smaller. When your comprehension on the immensity of God begins to expand, everything else gets smaller and smaller and smaller. When you allow your imagination to just contemplate how vast, how eternal, the people that are causing you problems, they get smaller smaller, smaller, and more and more insignificant. This is such a good practical truth. If you're facing issues, if you're facing difficulties, if you're facing problematic people, meditate on God. They get smaller and smaller, and that gives us courage in our Christian faith. And this is true in all areas of our personal discipleship. If in your personal discipleship, you're having marriage struggles, meditate on God. If you're having problems at work, meditate on God. If you're having relational issues, meditate on God. Because everything is influenced and informed by his immensity. But that leads to the other aspect about God we see from his revelation here. And this is really within the context of the whole Bible. Secondly, his personal identity. His personal identity. Now, something we need to remember about uh, this episode of the Exodus experience is that it is not a fairy tale. These things that we're reading about, they're actual events that occurred in real history. This is not a myth, it's not a legend, it's not a fable, it's not a metaphor, it's a true story. But even at that, listen to this, this is very important as we study the book of Exodus. The main point of Exodus is not the Exodus. The main point of Exodus is to point to a greater Exodus. The main point of the liberation of the enslaved Hebrews is to point forward to a greater liberation of those who are enslaved. The main point of Moses functioning as a deliverer is to point to a greater deliverer who would come. This is the liberation of God's people. And it is portraying for us this profound truth that there is coming a great setting free of those who are enslaved. And over the last two years, we studied verse by verse through the entire gospel of John. It took us two years to get through that fantastic book. 
And each week we were looking at it and we were seeing Jesus on display. And one of the things we see through the Apostle John's pen is that again and again we see Jesus put forward as deity. From very verse, first verse, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and what? The Word was God. Jesus is God. That's the whole book of John. But not just God, Yahweh. I am who I am is Jesus. We've considered this already in Exodus. The voice speaking from the burning bush is the second person of the Trinity. It's the manifestation, invisible form, this Christophany of Jesus. Jesus. There's the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. But in John chapter 8, Jesus reveals to the elders over Israel his true identity. This is not the first time Yahweh has been spoken to the elders over Israel. Moses will do that. But now here is Jesus, and he's going to speak to the elders over Israel. Look at John chapter 8. This is about 1,500 years later. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that, what? I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus is intentionally using to be, using that verb, I am. Am because he's drawing these religious leaders, these PhDs and Hebrew studies back to the burning bush, back to Exodus chapter 3, back to when they knew the first time God revealed himself with his personal name, and he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the voice that was speaking from the burning bush. He's claiming to be, I am who I am. And if you don't believe it, look what he says next at the end of the chapter. He says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Watch this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was Yahweh, (laughs) I am. So what did they do? They picked up stones to throw at him, to kill him, because. but he ran out of the temple and hit himself. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was saying, I'm the one who spoke through the burning bush. I'm the great deliverer of the people of God. Now, remember that mathematical equation we looked at earlier? Here's another answer. You could have said this, Sunday school class. Look at the next slide. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And just as he delivered Israel through the blood of the Passover lamb, so too, in an infinitely more important way, he would deliver all who trust in him through the blood of his own sacrifice, through his own shedding of blood on the cross for our salvation. Friends, the gospel is of first importance. The point of Exodus chapter 3, when God reveals himself as the great I am, is not to just keep our minds thinking about national Israel and their deliverance from Egypt, though that certainly happened, What it's to draw our attention to is the deliverance of Jesus through his own death, burial, and resurrection. Why? Because we are guilty sinners. We are all worthy of death. And he came and he lived for us and he died for us and he was resurrected and he commands all men everywhere, repent and believe the gospel. The Exodus passage again is is there for us to look at and consider Jesus, not to just think, oh, that's a cool story. The Exodus is there for us to see the one who is speaking. And what does he say? So many things. 
But for some this morning, he may be saying this. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. The Bible, the whole of it, is to move our hearts to know Jesus, to see Jesus, to love Jesus, to embrace Jesus, to surrender to Jesus, and this passage certainly is that. So that's the first thing I want us to consider from this passage, the pronouncement of his person. This is Jesus, the great I am. That leads to the second thing, a pronouncement of his promises. A pronouncement of his promises. In verse 16, the Lord once again repeats his personal name, Yahweh. He proclaims his self-sufficiency, his self-identity, his self-existence. And he once again commissions Moses, again, you're supposed to go to the elders over Israel. You are to speak to the Hebrew people on my behalf. But then in verse 17, it turns a little bit. And from verse 17 to the end of the chapter, God begins to pronounce some promises. These are the things that he says, will happen. I promise. And listen, if God makes a promise, you can believe it. There's a total of seven promises that God pronounces to Moses, and we'll consider them quickly this morning. We're not going to spend a lot of time on each one. Uh, Reason being is because these seven promises will be dealt with in the weeks to come as we consider the book of Exodus. The first of the seven promises he pronounces is this, collective liberation There will be a collective among all the Hebrews of liberation. Verse 17, I promise. Isn't it great to hear God say that? I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. Again, this was to be announced to the leaders over Israel and to the people of Israel themselves, that out of their affliction, out of the oppression of their slavery, think about it. This oppression, this affliction, this slavery, this hard labor under the the taskmasters of Egypt, it's all this generation had ever known. And it's all the previous generation had ever known. And it's all the previous generation had ever known. All they'd known, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, was the harsh affliction, slavery, work of Egypt. And here's the promise. I'm about to liberate you from that. You're about to be rescued from that. But not only is it it to be liberated from their affliction, this collective liberation, but secondly, uh, there would be liberated too a productive land. A productive land. Verse 17 continues, to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's a fundamental reality about salvation. Don't miss this. You're not just saved from something. You're saved to something. You see that? Yeah, I'm not just going to rescue out of the slavery you're in, but I'm going to send you to an abundant land. That's what the phrase land flowing with milk and honey means. It's a place of produce, a place where you can thrive as a people, a productive land. Here's the third promise God gives Moses. That is the elders were listening. (laughs) That's part of why he asked the question, who am I going to say sent me? What's your name? He was worried. Are they going to listen to me? And God says, they will listen to your voice. This is a pretty big deal. And they'll not only listen to him about his whole account, but they'll listen to him so much so that they'll go with him to Pharaoh to confront Pharaoh and ask for Pharaoh to let them go, which leads to the fourth promise, and that is you're going to be met head on, Moses, with an obstinate leader. (laughs) Here's my promise to you, Moses. When you and the elders go and say, hey, we want to be let go, he's going to say, eh, I don't think so. 
He says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. This is guaranteed. He's not going to let you just say, oh, you want to leave? Okay, drop your shovels, throw down your pickaxes, go. No. It's the free labor force that he's been building his magnificent monuments to himself for hundreds of years, him and his ancestors, on the backs of the Hebrews. And because he won't consent, Moses, here's promise number five, plagues will be launched. (laughs) Plagues are coming. That's what's being referred to in verse 20. So, because he won't let you go, I will promise, stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. These are the 10 plagues that come upon Egypt by the mighty hand of God. Here in this just little verse, he's giving a preview of coming attractions. He's not gonna let you go, so guess what? I'm gonna launch some plagues on his back. But then what's the next promise? Hebrews leave. (laughs) Hebrews leave. After that, he will let you go. In fact, the verb there for let you go is more in line of an expulsion. Get out of here. (laughs) Don't come back. You leave. That's the promise, and it leads to the next promise, the seventh one, financial loot. Financial loot. There's a word that God uses, at least it's translated in English, that I think is absolutely fantastic at the end of this chapter. The word is plunder. That's a pirate word. Aye, matey. Did you know there's a national talk like a pirate day? Yeah. I think it ought to be a day you get off work and everybody just talks like a pirate. Aye, let's go get some plunder, right? Sorry, that's my best uh, swashbuckling impersonation. Look at it it again, verse 21 and 22. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians, right? That's what's going to happen. Now, I've chosen not to spend much time on the first six promises. What time we got? Oh, yeah, we got some time. I'm going to expand a little bit on this last promise. There's a couple reasons why. One, because uh, it's fun. Number two, because that's, this last promise is given the most space in the, in the passage, in the text. Two verses describing what this plundering is going to be like. But another reason why I want to spend some time here and just kind of camp out a little bit is because it is this aspect of their liberation that God actually promised to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. Look at the promise that came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. God says to Abram, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Friends, they were slaves. What do slaves own? Nothing. They're impoverished. They're the lowest rung of the social ladder. But God promises Abraham they're going to be afflicted for hundreds of years, but they will come out with this financial loot, with great possessions. Let's consider this promise, particularly from Moses' perspective. Here is Moses, who grew up in Pharaoh's house, who was in the lap of luxury, 
And, and I have no doubt that every day he heard Egyptians use racial slurs against the Jews. You ever been in that kind of a situation before? Where you have heard someone use a racial slur in your presence? Particularly if you happen to have a connection to that race? I have. People see me as a white guy. Don't know that I have African Americans in my family. And they've used a racial slur in my presence. Gets all over me. Moses grew up in the palace, and he's hearing anti-Semitic Jewish slurs against his people. He knew full well the attitude of the Egyptians towards the scum of the earth Hebrews. And so for God to come to him and say, hey, guess what? They're going to give you all this money on your way out. Yeah, right. That's kind of hard to believe. They're despised by the Egyptians. And notice what else. The first thing he says that the Hebrews who are despised by the, the Egyptians, he says they will find favor. They'll find favor with the Egyptians. This is completely outside his experience in the realm of possibility. This will be a complete change of heart in the Egyptian people. What is, what is required for a change of heart? I'll tell you what, a miracle, a miracle. And then he's told also this plundering that's going to be done, it's going to be done by the women. Now, we know we have a much more egalitarian society today with women's rights. Let me tell you, women didn't do this kind of thing back then. Any plundering that was done, any ransacking of possessions was done by the men. It was done by the men. And it was done by the edge of the sword. It's done by gun point. It's done through military domination. It's done through overtaking a place. It's not just done by asking for it. But here there's not going to be any swords, not any warfare, no shots fired. There's going to be no begging, no manipulation, no persuading, no swashbuckling. (laughs) The women are just going to say, hey, I'll take that, 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 and that. Okay? Yeah, good. That's it. And notice further what's unusual is what they give. The Egyptians don't give the Hebrews some practical items for their journey. You might need these things on your camping trip out in the Sinai Desert. What good is gold on a camping trip? What good is silver in the middle of the desert? But that's exactly what they do. Why? Because these are things that have inherent financial value, inherent financial worth. Did you know that God is over the finances of the world? We're going to see these finances come into play as we study the book of Exodus continue. But I think perhaps what's most unusual about this prediction or this promise that God speaks is this gold and silver loot is going to be in such abundance, you're going to have to drape it on your kids. Now, we don't have much expensive jewelry in our home, but even the jewelry we have that is of some value, we don't let our four little kids carry it around and and play with it, right? Why? They'll lose it. They lose everything. (laughs) He says, this is going to be in such abundance. You're going to be carrying your other stuff. The silver, the gold, the nice clothing. 
You just have to drape that on your kids. They're going to be the pack mules that take it all out. God did it. And I would remind you that this promise of plundering, it began in verse 21 with this. Watch this. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Key words, I will give. I will give them favor. How did their attitudes toward the Hebrews completely change? They were hostile. They were prejudiced against them. How did this radical change happen in their minds? Here's how. God did it. God did it. I will give. It's, it speaks of grace. That's what giving is. It's grace. I will graciously give them a new mindset about you. I will have you be a favorable people in their minds. They will be inclined to you. And here's a great principle, and this is the principle where I want us to end. It's this. God changes hearts. God changes hearts. Friend, if you're here this morning and you in any way have or have had a heart inclined to God that has absolutely nothing to do with you, doesn't. If you have a heart for the Lord, that's not your own doing. It's a miracle. God changes hearts. God changes intentions. God brings clarity to clouded minds. I've seen it this week. God changes hearts. I want you to think about the people you know. And you think about, you can think, hey, no way. God changes hearts. God changes hearts. And so our response today to this reality that he rescues people from the domain of darkness and he transfers them into the kingdom of his beloved son this morning in response, we're going to sing this great hymn, Behold Our God. Friday I came to Bryce and I said, I need to change the last song we're going to sing. (laughs) I want us to sing Behold Our God. Because as we behold our God, We will see the one who holds the oceans in his hands. We'll see the one who numbers every grain of sand. Is the heart of your lost friend or coworker or your difficult relationship or your spouse, is anything too hard for him? God changes hearts. And so in the invitation, in the response time today, as we sing, you may want to come to these steps and you may want to just bring somebody to the Lord. God, you've got to change the heart of this person. I know I can't do it. There's no convincing. There's no describing to them that's going to change a heart unless the sovereign God of the universe does it. We worship the God who changes hearts. We worship the God who keeps his promises. And we worship the God who says in Isaiah 4, excuse me, 54, There is no weapon formed against you that will prosper. We worship the God who, the Apostle Paul says this, and I'll close with this passage, 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all of the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. That That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Church, let us behold our God.
that leads to my last thought. Because of God's power, we know he can and will keep his promises.